Welcome to episode three of the Screen Tom podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Parham. I teach communication and media studies at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. And with me, as always, we have from Los Angeles. Ryan Barnes, host of the RCD podcast and longtime friend of Tom. And returning special guest, Dr. Alec Weiner, Professor Emeritus of Communication and Media Studies at Palm Beach Atlantic University. What a coinky dink. We teach the same things. It's like Wow, uh... <laughs> it just sounds like poetry. <laughs> who could have planned who could have planned that? Um, oh. our topic for today is um, either seeing stars or lost in space opera. Which do y'all like better? It's like this is like Bullwinkle. hey i'm of that generation i love bullwinkle by the way the bullwinkle reboot on uh, amazon's not bad they captured the spirit so we're going to be talking about the star trek and star wars franchises and that has been a subject of bitter debates over the last uh, 40 years however each of them has uh has experienced a resurgence in the last 10 plus years because uh of some mergers and acquisitions behind the scenes. Um, Paramount Pictures was, has Paramount and Viacom and CBS have, have merged and split so many times, it makes my head dizzy. However, the spot, the, the stock is also split a couple of times. So my, uh, my 401k from when I worked at Paramount, the two times I was there, first as a junior exec in licensing and then as the writer's assistant on JAG, I'm not complaining. So uh, even though the, the, the Star Trek franchise now resides on uh, Paramount Plus, formerly CBS All Access, uh, that reboot started with the J.J. Abrams uh, movies. And then on the other side, Star Wars, I, I uh, thought of this because I'm very clever. This, we're looking at Star Wars A.D. Anno Disney specifically after the Walt Disney Company purchased Lucasfilm, which is in 2012. So let's look at the Star Trek franchise first. Uh, the, uh, the first significant reboot was 2009 with the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. It was the 11th Star Trek movie, like we can't count, but they just called it Star Trek. And it was followed by Star Trek Into Darkness four years later, and then Star Trek Beyond uh, in 2016. And... Um, yeah, it was, um, I liked Star Trek 2009 because it, it, everything that happened in classic Trek happened still in legacy Trek. However, Abrams is exploring the Kelvin verse, this, uh, alternate, uh, splinter universe where, uh, James Kirk's dad died, played by the once in future Thor, Chris Hemsworth in basically a nine minute sequence which kind of put him on the map career wise but um love star trek 09 did not care for into darkness because benedict cumberbatch as Khan is just wrong and star trek beyond was fine nothing much to say about it your thoughts about those that trilogy of movies even though a fourth one is finally coming i had that you know enjoyed the uh jj abrams driven daring do uh, and chances, but when it was over, I felt, what? Wait a minute. I mean, I, yeah, you can say it's an alternate universe, but it still feels like for purposes of freeing up st- narrative space, they, you know, in a sense, it's sitting there, felt like they'd undone everything else for the sake of a 
film expanding into film again. I understand that. So it, it had a, I had very mixed feelings about it. Uh, in the Darkness was was once again stunt driven, action driven, and then it reverses uh, the third act of Wrath of Khan for the sake of reversing the third act of Wrath of Khan. Uh, so it, disappointing there. Uh, you can only be clever for so long. And Star Trek Beyond felt like an extended episode of if it, as if it was a series uh, with a bigger budget, but doesn't leave much of an impression uh, for me. Yeah, I thought it was really forgettable. How about you, RCB? Um, my relationship with Star Trek is a little all over the place because I, I was never like a dedicated... It was never like a part of my growing up life a lot before the the new movies came out. I had seen a, an episode or two here and there um, of original series or Next Generation. And oddly enough, I didn't see these movies in order. The first one I saw was Star Trek Beyond, which Ooh. kind of felt like, oh, this feels like, like you guys were saying, an extended episode of the original series. And I enjoyed some of the pairings in that. I enjoyed the banter between Carl Urban and Zachary Quinto um, as Bones and Spock. But it does kind of have this sense of like, it's fine and it's fun, but there isn't like a point where anyone's going to point to and say, this is like one of the most memorable things in all of Trek. And then later on, I went back and watched the first Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. And they it kind of feels like there's there's this weird feeling I have with how J.J. Abrams has interpreted franchises, as we will talk about later on in this podcast as well. But it feels like so much of the driving onus and the reason why people love Star Trek is because it's that philosophical exploration of our ourselves in addition to exploring... Um, space and it felt like so much of it was just shifted into a spectacle oriented um action movie action movie because we have the budget to do this now we have effects that can do all of this now which is one of those things where when you have something as long running as star trek or star wars you get into this thing of like do you like when things are modernized or is it take away some of the specialness of what is being done in the storytelling and i think that the movies definitely are relying a little bit more on spectacle and not as much on the narratives driving those stories so you you brought up abrams so that's the uh the elephant in the room um star wars anno disney now clone wars made the transition from lucasfilm being independent and uh and the acquisition by disney and so everything in the Star Wars series by Dave Filoni is considered canon. Rebels, likewise, was was made after the Disney. It was the first project initiated after the Disney acquisition. And then, of course, then we have the sequel trilogy, which, oy vey, uh, I'm going to tag in uh, Alec on this one. Um, would you agree with critics who would say that Force Awakens is less of a sequel and more of a requel? Yeah, it was like, let's play it safe. Um, let, let, familiarity breeds um, money. And, <laughs> uh, and by doing so, um, it was, they discarded, famously discarded Lucas's 
uh, sequel uh, storyline and wound up, hey, let's follow the same beats for everything, except bigger. The whole planet is a Death Star and we'll do it. I mean, this is a very old criticism of it. But of course, when you, you try to be original uh, by going to The Last Jedi and it doesn't make anybody very happy except a few critics, I think, and then the rise of Skywalker kind of seals the deal that this is what happens when you hand off a major trilogy without an arc in mind. Without a you, plan. You, 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 you have to make, they literally made it up as they went along, unbelievably. And, and you could tell. Since you mentioned uh, The Last Jedi, I know that one of those people, one of those critics that was satisfied by The Last Jedi is on this podcast with us, Ryan Barnes. Um <laughs> And you yes. and I are. For my manners. <laughs> I find it. I was talking with my my uh, worship team leader at, at Palm Beach Atlantic about this uh, at lunch on Thursday after chapel. But um, shout out to Zach Drum, holla! But I think the Last Jedi gets unfairly maligned, and but I'll let I'll let Ryan Barnes tag in because I know he has a lot of affection for this movie. So, yes, as of this moment, I have the unpopular opinion of not only having The Last Jedi be my favorite Star Wars movie ever, but currently, Last Jedi is my favorite movie ever. And I know that that's one of those things people don't like to say, but this just has a lot of personal stake for me because it's one of those situations where, like, the things you're going through in your life are very much lining up with what you're seeing as in a movie, and when I'm watching an older version of Luke Skywalker be a little bit more disenchanted with the idea of the Jedi order and everything that it was, that was lining up with a lot of my own personal life of what a lot of things I had just grown up with. I was becoming disenchanted with the organizations that I had been involved with. And it was kind of hard on me to be feeling those things. And this kind of helped me have a little bit more closure as to understanding it's not about, the, the entities in your life that dictate things to you. It's what your connection to it is. But every single frame of this film just makes me smile ear to ear. I love that. I think this is the most beautiful cinematography of any Star Wars project ever. I like that it takes things and tries to do new things with them. I, I've, I find a lot of it a lot more respectful of star wars in general up to that point because it's very clear from force awakens that jj abrams is a fan of what he believes is true star wars which is undoubtedly a new hope and empire strikes back but when you watch the last jedi there is i i get a bigger sense of respect for the entirety of star wars up to that point there are references to the prequel era events even though they are not as well executed as some people may think. And some people grew up with them and are very defensive of that. But I think the thing that really makes me love this movie is that Luke Skywalker was the hero of my childhood. And in a point in my life where I was really struggling with a lot of things, I got to see my hero struggle. The idea that Luke should be this Per ultimate ideal of goodness and be on a pedestal and if he ever fell off the pedestal it's just wrong is just so uninteresting to me and that's been kind of 
my problem with a lot of other projects that have come out of star wars under disney is there's this this thing like we can't alter in any way this thing people knew from the original trilogy because it is sacred to them and if we change things they're going to get upset and if that's the takeaway people are taking from last jedi it's just so depressing to me and i can't tell people what to think if they genuinely just don't enjoy the movie they don't enjoy the movie but all of these things that people criticize about the movie a lot of them are seeded by what jj did with force awakens jj put luke on the island jj had han solo say luke just walked away from it all what what was ryan johnson supposed to do other than take that and try and do the most compelling version of that that he could and then you go into rise of skywalker and it's very clear disney hit the panic button they were nervous about the fact that even though they made a movie in the last jedi that grossed 1.3 billion dollars that everyone was too upset with how it changed everything and not enough people who liked it were being vocal about it because they didn't want to be involved in the discord a lot of this is just like nuances of fandom that don't really are you are you are you implying toxic fandom i think that pretty much everything is touched by toxic fandom these days it's it's pretty hard to find something that is now at a point where it is so toxic proof that no one is frustrated with it in some respect yeah i i agree with a lot of what you say about uh the last jedi one of the things that i thought was interesting about it is it's not just a hagiography it's not just this revered history of this of this legendary character that Johnson was interested in deconstructing the Luke Skywalker mythos and his answers didn't make a lot of people happy but from a story point of view it was very interesting is the movie perfect absolutely not but i think it's definitely my favorite of the sequel trilogy just because interesting things happen in it um Let's uh, bounce back to Star Trek to talk about the TV shows because the Star Trek TV shows live action beat the Star War- the Star Wars TV shows live action by a little bit. Mainly because Star Trek's bread and butter has been TV since 1966. Uh, first we had Star Trek Discovery, which started off being a prequel series. And then, uh, boy, they talk about toxic fandoms. Season 2, when they introduced Spock, some of the fans howled. When they brought in uh, Pike's Captain Christopher Pike's Enterprise and Spock in Number One from the original Star Trek pilot that NBC passed on, but those characters turned out to be such fan favorites, they got their own show this year, which is where we're going to end our discussion on Star Trek today. But Discovery has been—we um, have a black female lead. When the show starts, she's not a captain. Uh, and also she's in big trouble after the, the first two episode prologue to the series. It leans heavily into classic Star Trek and, you know, extended Star Trek universe mythos. I like Discovery a lot. I realize it's not perfect and some storylines have been better than others. Uh, full disclosure, Doug Jones, who plays Captain Saru, is a friend of mine. Great, great, uh, great guy, uh, man of God, strong, loving Christian, a uh, big hugger. COVID must have been driving him crazy because he loves to <laughs> hug on people. So uh, Discovery was followed up by Star Trek Picard, 
which was the long-awaited return of Jean-Luc Picard. However, comma, this was not Star Trek The Next Generation Redux, although season three of Picard will be. In season one, they introduce a new crew. Uh, Brent Spiner recurs as David and a Sung, because there are never enough Sungs around. And then um, Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis reprise their roles as Riker and Troy. It, it's always good to see them. Um, that first story arc did not float a lot of people's boat for season one. And whatever you think of that, I think season two is a bit of a, is really, I think they were trying to tap into some first contact slash Star Trek four mojo with, uh, with the crew time traveling back to 2024. But boy, it really was. I thought it was all over the place, story-wise. Not my favorite. I am looking forward to um, to the, the Next Generation Reunion Season 3, which is the final season. Sir Patrick Stewart only only agreed to do three seasons from the start. And they've already shot Season 3. They shot two and three back-to-back. -back. Uh, Lower Decks was, is an animated series inspired by a Next Generation episode from the same title, focusing on the low-ranking officers on the Enterprise, as much fun as it is, and they and they do have, you know, it's ostensibly kind of a comedy, but they don't do anything that really violates Star Trek con continuity per se, and they brought in more guest stars. John Delancey returned as Q. Uh, Riker came back as, uh, or sorry, Jonathan Frakes as Riker. And then uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the guy who created the show really, really, he's a big Next Generation fan. And so you can tell that uh, it's lovingly crafted. And then we finally have Prodigy, which is aimed for younger viewers. And um, Kate Mulgrew reprises her role as, as Catherine Janeway, albeit CGI version of Catherine Janeway, for a, a ostensibly a kids show, Prodigy I, is very watchable for adults. Uh, it's darker than one might think for kids, but uh, the bad guys are played by are voiced by John Noble, and uh, I'm blanking on the actor's name. He's everywhere these days. He's on The Man Who Fell to Earth, and uh, he was on Westworld. But it's a lot of fun, and um, so. That's uh, where the Paramount Plus series were before 2021. On the Star Wars side, after the sequel trilogy, we had Star Wars Resistance. I haven't seen it yet. Have you, RCB? I saw the first season and did not, was not propelled super, uh, I was not propelled by it to go really jump into season two yet. I just haven't gotten around to it. It's... It's okay. I think a lot of the difficulty that Resistance faces as a show is in the fact that the the sequel trilogy was not planned out and the fact that if you think about it, episodes 7, 8, and 9 all take place within the span of one year. And that creates some problems to really flush out the world other than digging back into previous eras of the canon and bringing that stuff into a sequel era timeline. It, it's, it's fine. I would, I'll get around to finishing it at some point, but it's, it, it's definitely not as all ages engaging as 
some of the other animated stuff like Clone Wars and Rebels. Yeah, I haven't I haven't sampled Resistance yet. Now they did get Oscar Isaac to reprise his uh, role as Poe, right? Yes, they got him to reprise his role as Poe, and at the very beginning, I do believe they got Gwendolyn Christie to reprise her role as Phasma, and that and that was like kind of a thing where they're like, oh, this has some actual weight behind it, and then you get into season two. And they did not get Adam Driver to reprise his role as Kylo Ren, that you have someone doing a Kylo Ren impression. And that's where it kind of started to feel like this was the last vestige of Lucasfilm trying to make anything for a Disney television network because they were already well into trying to develop things for Disney+. Plus. Yes. And before we move to the Disney Plus shows, we've got to talk about the two Star Wars stories, Rogue One and Solo. I, for my money, Rogue One is probably one of my favorite of the Disney era Star Wars films. Just, you know, it's it's a prequel and we know how the story is going to end. But the fact that they fully commit to it and we also get to see Darth Vader be completely terrifying towards the end. Uh, I just, uh, I mean, the fact that it's popular enough that it's getting a spinoff prequel series and or uh in a few months but and solo a lot of people like to take pot shots at out in aaron reich i happen to enjoy him as an actor i saw him in uh he was in hail caesar which i just watched again a couple weeks ago and also he was in i forget the name of the it's it's a it's it's one of those you know young witches movies like post twilight everybody's trying to get that twilight magic back but uh he plays like the mortal and he's in love with a witch but I thought he was, you know, I thought he was good in a thankless role. So the fact that the that uh, Lord and Miller were the original directors, and I think they did one too many improvisations on Lawrence Kasdan's script, causing Kasdan to call <laughs> to call Lucasfilm and say, "Hey, no, stop that!" You know, I'm Lawrence freaking Kasdan. I have Oscar nominations. I've been with these franchises. Before you kids were, while well, you kids were in diapers, so they got bounced, and Ron Howard ended up reshooting like eighty percent of the movie. So the fact that it's got any narrative coherence at all is just somewhat miraculous. Um, I thought Donald Glover was a revelation as a young Lando Calrissian. Uh, whether the they did not give an update on the proposed Lando limited series at Celebration. But I'd love to see that with Billy D. Williams starting off and segueing to Donald Glover. That could be a lot of fun. Thoughts about either of those movies from you guys? Rogue One is, I think, my third favorite Star Wars film, actually. Overall? New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, The Ewoks knock it down to fourth place for uh, Return of the Jedi. Uh, (laughs) I, I simply think that um, Rogue One feels like it is a a coherent, fitting part, uh, in a, in a true prequel. I mean, I I came I went to it cold, uh, just a vague idea that it was about the Death Star or something. And so when uh, the third act, when they're at the big battle, I was like, oh, this is that battle. They said the, the the first victory of the rebels, and I said it was just pleasurable to go. This really works. Everybody dies, <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and but it was a costly, you know. It was a right balancing. Is it, uh, yes, a new hope is great. We need uh, the Jedi back, but these are the people on the front lines paying the price there. And it showed you didn't have to be 
that mythic uh, to tell a good Star Wars story uh, as a war story, as it, as it was uh, trying to be. Uh, and But it was still felt very Star Warsy. A big space battle, Star Wars, getting back to Star Wars again. I loved it. Solo, um, I, I just, I call it the importance of being Harrison. Um, <laughs> because it's, it really was, it was so hard, and like you say, thankless, trying to play a younger version who winds up being sort of pre-redeemed in the movie. He's not that bad. Uh, th- that it's hard to see he's this cynical, out-for-himself guy at the beginning of A New Hope. Uh, so I think they softened him up too much, and it was too much, oh, look, we could have another uh, a sequel here. What do we, you know, for people who had not been watching the um, the, ser- the, the, the animated series, is uh, to, to see, um, um, oh, gosh, the guy who got uh, cut into, I can't believe his, his, his um Darth Maul. Darth Maul, sorry. Uh, to see him back, not knowing the backstory that they had almost in- unbelievably p- literally put him back together again, was like, huh? It felt, you know, jerked off in the wrong direction. So um, it was very hard for me to like or love Solo. The, um, I just got to give a shout out to, uh, in in Rogue One, I really kind of love uh, that. It, it's kind of sad that Jin Erso and Cassian Andor never get a chance to, you know, to fully gel as a couple because they die. But I, I love some of their, you know, the, the big fight, you know, you were going to kill my father, but I didn't. But you were going to. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. just thought the actors, you know, uh, Felicity Jones and, of course, um, why am I blanking in his name? Uh, Diego Luna. And Diego Luna. I just thought they were both charming and like uh like alex said it was fun to see people you know ordinary people involved with activities in the resistance instead of all these generals and whatnot you know the unsung heroes when they yeah. killed the droid i knew that the movie was not going to end well <laughs> yeah. Yeah. um let's segue to the disney plus shows the mandalorian uh landed uh everybody kind of assumed the mandalorian was going to be about boba fett and of course, it wasn't about Boba Fett. It was about a new Mandalorian. But uh, and then, of course, at the end of the first episode, we get, you know, that we meet the child, aka Baby Yoda, aka Grogu, and Disney merchandising just take hits the jackpot. I mean, they would not. Uh, Favreau would not allow licensors to take a look at uh, at Baby Yoda till the episode aired, which meant. It took six months for the merch to get on the shelves, but it will never be off the shelves. <laughs> so, but I'm I'm digging. For me, the Mandalorian is the epitome of of uh, Star Wars on Disney Plus. Yes, all the episodes are not equally good. Some of them have stumbled, but overall, there is a coherent storyline. Uh, the bond between Mando and uh, and Grogu is strong. And um, we find out more of his backstory and, and more about great tie-ins to the animated series, which, you know, <laughs> to quote Mr. T, I pity the fool who hasn't sampled at least some of Clone Wars and Rebels because there are call-outs to the animated series because Filoni was in charge of those too. So, of course, he's got all his action figures. He's going to play with them. Uh, Ryan or Alec? 
I would say that I, I would agree with you. The Mandalorian is definitely the best live action series on on Disney Plus because it has the benefit that the other two shows really don't have, which is a a chunk of the established timeline that is relatively unexplored so far in the in the new canon since Disney took over. And it also doesn't have the baggage of a pre-existing attachment to the main character. Our Mandalorian Din Djarin is basically a guy we get to gradually peel back the layers of who he is underneath the mask and the kind of person that he is being changed into being through his relationship with Baby Yoda. And it it does stumble in a couple of places. I think that I think that my biggest gripes with the show are literally just that it is still within a time period that is a little safe to be playing around in. It's it's within the timeline of the nine movies. And I'm kind of getting I've been getting to a point over the course of Disney's ownership of Star Wars where I'm kind of just getting tired of seeing stormtroopers. <laughs> <laughs> but but they have nuke they get an upgrade for the sequel trilogy. <laughs> not yet. Oh that's right, we're not there yet. That yeah, that um, we on a very special episode of The Mandalorian or whatever Star Wars tie-in show, we get the first order stormtroopers. <laughs> yeah, I um uh, love Mandalorian. Um, I just get a you know, they they you know you get to certain in certain shows, you get a certain thing where the character, as long as they're in character, um, and you like the story, you're there. Uh, you're not have to struggle. You're not you're not equivocating about it. Um, okay, are we? Can we go on uh, to? Are we going to go? In the order on the list, Mandalorian, Visions, and Boba Fett. Yeah, uh, if you want to start for Visions. Yeah, I, I only watched the first couple of them, so I really don't have any point of view about it. I I enjoyed Visions. I thought it was interesting. For me, uh, Ryan just talked about taking a risk. For me, Visions is the first thing that I really felt that they 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 approached these you know a bunch of Japanese film or animators and said, hey. Go f- just have some fun in the Star Wars universe. So some of the stories are better than others. The animation is always interesting to watch. But I'm looking forward to... My understanding for season two is they're opening it up to world animators, not just Japanese animators. Is that what you've heard, Ryan? Yes, I believe they... It's going to be nine episodes again, but each episode is going to be from a different country. I believe it's Japan, the UK, Ireland... France, South Africa, India. Um, I'm forgetting a couple of the other ones. The U.S. is getting one. I know that. Oh, interesting. And, I, and, I, and I'm forgetting the other com- countries. But yes, this this has been probably my favorite thing to come out of Star Wars on Disney Plus. The fourth episode of Visions, titled "The Village Bride," is probably the, the joy I experience when I get to watch The Last Jedi is felt in this short as well. And it's just, it's this, 
it's this wonderful thing that I think that they were like, Star Wars appeals to so many people for so many different reasons. So we're just going to let people go crazy with what they tend to relate to more than others. And I feel like part of the desire in bringing other countries into this for a second season is because while all of the shorts I thought were really solid in different ways, all of the shorts being from Japanese animation studios, Japanese samurai films being a large inspiration for Star Wars, Uh there were lightsabers in every single one. And I think that was something that really kind of satisfied me because in a post Skywalker saga world and really only existing on Disney plus for the majority of these shows, there wasn't a whole lot of lightsaber action. And so this kind of satisfied that desire in me as a star Wars fan. Uh, I just realized I, I unintentionally omitted, uh, the Bad Batch from my rundown. Uh, the Bad Batch is a cl- is a spinoff of the Clone Wars. Specifically, uh, we meet the Bad Batch in uh, in the final season of Clone Wars. I believe that's season seven. But um, I actually like them better on the Bad Batch than I did in the backdoor pilot for the Bad Batch. Uh, again, a little bit inconsistent, but I thought it, I think it's interesting that. Uh, the the girl who hangs out with them is Alpha, and she is Alpha, whereas uh, Boba Fett, the clone Boba Fett, is Omega. Oh, so sorry, she, sorry, she, sorry. She's I, I got, Omega, and he's I got, I got that wrong. She's Omega, he's Alpha. So I thought that's interesting, and again, we're kind of filling in the gaps post uh, Order 66, and we have the Bad Batch, the Squad of Five, and then... There's betrayal because one of them, five, you know, four of the five are, are fighting against their programming and eventually get the chip removed. And then the other, uh, spoiler alert, basically is just, has an over-exaggerated sense of duty. And the revelation in this first season finale is, oh, he's got the chip removed, but he doesn't care. He still wants to bring them in because they're not following orders. Um, but um, so it's, you know, it's solid. Nothing to write home about, but it's solid. Um, and the less said about the Book of Boba Fett, the better. It's just six episodes, two of which are really Mandalorian season two point five. Uh, Boba is reduced. Uh, I, Boba is reduced. I call it Disney minus. Oh, Disney minus. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, Ooh. harsh. Yeah, I was. I really liked Tamora Morrison as an actor, but again, my problem with it is the backstory they gave about Boba is are things that you could infer. In fact, Patton Oswalt on an episode of Parks and Recreation does a filibuster about how Boba Fett could survive the Sarlacc pit. And basically, almost everything in his filibuster from that episode shows up in the series. So yeah. I just, I don't know. I, I've never understood the cult of Boba Fett. Uh, maybe it's the jetpacks or, or, or... Well, it was the, it was the appearance, frankly, and it, it was one of the coolest characters in Star Wars, and now he's not cool anymore. We know too much. Well, part we of the like problem... My, my biggest problem with the series is they didn't really establish why he would go from bounty hunter to, you know, wannabe crime lord. That arc yeah. was not satisfying. 
and Robert Rodriguez throwing in these candy-colored uh, escapees from a Spy Kids movie didn't help. <laughs> the mods. Yeah. So yeah, yeah let's yeah. stop that. Uh, okay, so we have uh, we have about twenty-five minutes to talk about our, our our main story about the current the current examples of which franchise is doing a better at brand extension. And Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which debuted uh, a couple months ago, they're getting, they've got two more episodes left of season one, and they're shooting season two. And then we have Obi-Wan Kenobi, which just finished airing its sixth episode last week. It's still listed as a limited series on IMDb, however, comma, I have heard rumblings through Variety and other sources that the ratings were huge, and we know that the mouse likes money, so... Uh, Deborah Chow and others may be conspiring. Oh, and Ewan McGregor said he'd be willing to do another season. So we could be in a situation where there is a second season of this limited series. Oy vey. Um, uh, Alex sent me an article from Rolling Stone by Alan Sepinwall, who's their television reviewer. But he gives a slight edge to Star Trek and Strange New Worlds in terms of the franchise wars at the moment. And his rationale is this. They pay tribute to continuity, but they are not enslaved by it. And um, what's fascinating, the eight episodes of Strange New Worlds we've seen so far, they give shout-outs to a lot of the, the classic characters, and specifically the, the characters from that lost pilot in the cage. By the way... The uh, the showrunner likes to joke. Henry Alonzo Myers likes to joke. This is the longest pickup series pickup from pilot to series pickup. Fifty five years <laughs> from when from when the cage it did not air, but when the cage was produced and uh, Strange New Worlds got an episode pickup. For me, the thing that makes Strange New Worlds work two full, well two main things. One, the cast. Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romaine are terrific as Pike, Spock, and number one. Um, Jeffrey Hunter's son, Chris Chris Hunter, is a fan of Anson Mount playing the role that his dad established. And uh, Leonard Nimoy's son and daughter-in-law, who happens to be Terry Farrell, a.k.a. Jadzia Dax from Deep Space Nine, are also fans of Ethan Peck's work as Spock. And Rebecca Romaine's just a lot of fun as number one. I mean... It's interesting to see the three of them gelled, but when we got, when the when the series was when the when the the pilot for Strange New Worlds aired, or the first episode really it wasn't a it, it wasn't really a pilot because the pilot was the cage in '66, but the uh, the supporting crew members include familiar faces from classic Star Trek such as Doctor Mabinga, who was in a couple of episodes, uh, Nurse Christine Chapel, who was in quite a few because she was also played by Major Barrett Roddenberry who played uh, uh, number one in the original Unsold Pilot. And then uh, a lot of other surprises. Oh, there's Cadet Uhura. So, uh, and it is not unusual for a training, for a midshipman in training or a cadet to have a stint on a warship, or in this case, a starship. So we meet a very young Uhura. Uh, so, and the... The, the new characters are a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I think Alec and uh, his wife were asking me, do they have that much fun on the bridge of a starship? Uh, when you're out at sea, having been on the bridge of a, uh, of a warship in, on combat patrol in the Persian Gulf, 
um, there are many moments of levity because you're sometimes on on deck half the day, 12 hours a day or significant portions of a day. So there can be a lot of levity. But when things get serious, people will get serious. But I just, you know, the, the episodic storytelling, I think, was a very wise decision because everybody else, well, except for except for Lower Decks, but uh, Discovery and Picard are doing season-long arcs. And I love the standalone episodes, but continuing character arcs, which we never got real character arcs in the classic series or story arcs for that matter. So for me, all of those things work for uh, Strange New Worlds. I um, I got you know, sort of mixed things. It's, it's when it, this takes you back, but I remember when um, Voyager started, I began to think. Uh, this is all so familiar now. We've seen so many episodes. Well, fast forward past several other stories. I don't think there's any property um, that came out of television that has so many stories that have been told because it's gone on for so long. So the question is, how strange and new can these worlds be? Uh, it, it's even the original um, series began to have its own sub genres stories uh time travel um world that looks just like earth so we can use backlots and so forth and so on and it began and and next generation had a holodeck episode uh, a first contact episode so there's only so many variations i suppose i guess this is gonna sound odd but i was there when star trek came on the air and i was i think it was in seventh grade and i remember memorizing the trying hard to remember the theme, the musical theme to it. And I was there until the third season when it competed with our high school football games and, you know, and it, it just as well, uh, you know, it was, so, it was so awful. And so, I mean, it's just, I've seen over and over again. And now I appreciate that they're becoming more episodic. I, uh, I see they're trying to not be too derivative, but it seems like almost all Star Trek feels derivative. And I, and I can still remember how it felt to see the Doomsday Machine and uh, Balance of Terror and others. And those, you know, I still appreciate what they did. And I don't know how you can reinvent something and make it that much fr fresh, that, that, that fresh again. And, you know, so in that sense, it's, it's a comfort food. Star Trek like this is sort of a comfort food for a lot of people. And I like it, but I still find the, the quarters incredibly, you know, cruise-specific there and, and unbelievably big compared to what a starship would normally be. It's just welcome to the love boat. <laughs> um, so I, I, so there's, there's, there's things I like, things I'm not like, it's just, I'm, you know, I give it a place of honor in our viewing schedule, but it's not like I'm wildly eager to see what happens next as I would uh, on a show that's breaking new ground and, and is, it seems, uh, you know, more original in many ways. It's almost impossible for a star to be original without getting, and un, you know, unlikable. It's just what it is. It's a brand. Yep. RCB, what about you? I think the fact that I am a relatively like casual um, Trek viewer has helped me with this series because this is the first series I've actually like started watching from the beginning and have been continuing through to the end. I've seen bits and pieces of a lot of the series throughout the years, but this is the first one where I've just been dedicated to it. And I think the thing that really has made 
me forget a lot of like the familiar like episode themes of like these shows that tend to do a lot of similar types of episodes is that at the end of the day, this show is more than a lot of other stuff on TV right now. It's optimistic. It's hopeful. It's something that where everyone may struggle, but they're trying to do better. And it's something that I didn't think I'd find as refreshing as I did until I started watching the episodes. And also just the unabashed like willingness to be campy on this show. The last episode where this they're trapped in this nebula that is turning the enterprise into a medieval setting from a children's book Dr. Mamenga's reading to his daughter. I was just like this is so ridiculous and I'm eating every second of this. I that is my favorite episode of the show so far. And then I as much as I saw like in trailers they were going to do something a little campy like this and I was excited for Trek to do something campy. I wasn't prepared for it to get me to tear up a little bit at the end because the ending was just so beautiful. So I think the fact that I haven't had years and in some cases for people decades of familiarity with Star Trek has really just allowed me to appreciate the simplicity and the optimistic nature of this show. And also the the fact that it is episode to episode it's dealing with different things it's not just one overarching storyline it's also kind of refreshing because i grew up on like saturday morning cartoons and disney channel shows where every single episode was dealing with a different thing and now everything just feels like it's got a it's a six hour movie trying to tell a story in six chunks or more and it's refreshing to have things feel a little bit more episodic um before we move on to uh, to Obi Wan, one of the things that's fascinating, oh, I thought one of the interesting choices they made in uh, in Strange New Worlds on classic Star Trek, we meet Christopher Pike and the and the first crew of the Enterprise in a two part episode called The Cage. Basically, Spock hijacks the ship, commandeers the ship. And we know it has something to do with his former commanding officer, Christopher Pike, who has been grievously injured and now is in like this uh, combination iron lung slash motorized wheelchair. And he's horribly disfigured and he can only answer yes or no questions. One beep for yes, two beeps for no. So um, in one of the episodes on Discovery Season 2, he has, Pike has a flash forward he has a vision of his ultimate fate. And so when we pick up strange new worlds, he's kind of he's kind of shook by that. And that's kind of where he, what he's dealing with part of season 1 is when you know how your life is going to end, what do you do? And he basically gets really good advice from I think it's Lan Nunian Singh, a descendant of Khan, that uh Maybe you can you may be able to change your future, but regardless, live your life to the fullest. And so that's the that's the attitude he's adopted, which is fascinating because acknowledging his fate in a way has freed him to be even more to go even more boldly. Whereas uh, Sepinwall makes the case that on the other hand, Obi-Wan Kenobi is so beholden to Star Wars continuity 
and possibly violating it in many instances that it's just wow i, I mean we know it's it's fast it's 10 years it's 10 years after the events of revenge of the sith and 10 years before the events of a new hope so the plot engine is leia has been kidnapped by people trying by the third sister reva who is trying to deliver obi-wan to Darth Vader, and uh, I love the actor who the, the actor who plays Little Leia. I think she channels a young Carrie Fisher admirably. I've been kind of annoyed that there have been toxic fans who've gone after her on the internet, and also toxic fans who've gone after to the actor who plays Reva, who is was Emmy nominated for the Queen's Gambit, but she's quite good. She's imposing. My problem with Reva is her character arc makes no sense. Yes. And it's just like, what? Oh, come on. So um, I, one of my students asked me, I told him I was getting ready to do this podcast. And he said, what do you think? It's like, ooh, it's two hours of plot crammed into six hours of time slot. Um, I like the, um, uh, I, I thought it was, is, is this trip necessary question? Uh, but the idea that Obi-Wan would have, what do you call PTSD, burnout, uh, a crushed spirit after the fall of the Republic and his failure uh, with his Padawan, that's a, that's a kernel of a good idea. It is. But it, but it, it takes it so long, and they have these confrontations, you're going to think, I've sensed uh, something I haven't sensed in a long time. Well, it hasn't been that long. <laughs> you know, um, so, and, and they have these confrontations, and I felt like, that the big the big reveal at the end, I killed Anakin's like, oh, that's fixing a script issue from that you know, because of what Lucas had done in the second film, you know, to, to make Anakin his father. Uh, and you're right, Reva is uh, say, okay, so it's all a big cover to get Kenobi and kill Anakin. Doesn't work, obviously. And then why does she go after Luke, it makes no sense. And there's no suspense. Don't even, we know nothing's going to happen. That that's the part that really just, huh? I just it's had like, to somebody must have said, "Wait a minute, why is she doing this to get revenge? Well, to kill this kid who she doesn't know? I'm going to kill the kid you don't even know you have." Yeah, this is like fan fiction. Oi, <laughs> I, Ryan. <laughs> Hot take, as the children like to say, best acting performance in this series was by Joel Edgerton. <laughs> <laughs> Joel Edgerton's always good. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in a time period where the originals were already out for a while and the prequels were coming out at the same time. So I was always digesting these things simultaneously. So any like things that are like retcons and continuity. I, I'm just used to that being part of Star Wars because it started in Return of the Jedi and it's continued in some form in every Star Wars thing since then. My, the, the re, my opinion about these little changes that you make is that if you're going to fundamentally make something different than how the fans think it's going, it's supposed to be, you better land the idea because it needs to be a good one. And in all honesty, one of the best ones that I can see is something like the creation of a character like Ahsoka. Because I remember being very like, 
hesitant to the idea that Anakin would have had an apprentice between episode two and three that we never saw, but they wrote Ahsoka to have such a great arc in the Clone Wars that got explored in Rebels and now in The Mandalorian in her own show. And Obi-Wan Kenobi is just full of a lot of things that I think they thought people want to see this. And there's really nothing else to it than that because the Inquisitors in their current form were brought in in Star Wars Rebels. And ever since they were brought in, I was just always like, this is not a great execution of an idea. I don't know exactly how they were portrayed in the continuity before Disney came and retconned all of the now Legends content, but they're basically like glorified, Force-sensitive brutes for the Empire because they can't train them to their full potential. Otherwise they could try to overthrow Vader and the emperor. So they're, they're really just kind of an excuse to have more red lightsabers in this time period. (laughs) And the the only effective way that I think they've been used is in the video game, Jedi fallen order, because it's literally just the escalation of the boss fight. It, it, they, they don't work when you try to flush them out as characters. And the, and, and the idea that like, a lot of these Inquisitors are former Jedi who just turned to the dark side because they were going to die otherwise. It's just like, that cheapens what Order 66 initially was supposed to be, and it cheapens the idea of what it means to take a vow to either be a Jedi or the decision to fall to the dark side. There's just so many things in here that they're just half-baked ideas and in all honesty when they first announced that there was going to be an obi-wan kenobi series what i had hoped the series would have been is where this series actually ends i would have been i'm a little bit more philosophical a little bit more spiritual and how i look at star wars and the things that um excite me so i was more interested in this potentially being like Obi-Wan's spiritual journey with Qui-Gon reconciling with his past, reconciling with the fall of Anakin and him going on this special training that Yoda references in the end of Revenge of the Sith. And now this show, it's like, yo, they even do the, the whole montage at the beginning of the series, flashing back through all this stuff. And Yoda says, I'll teach you how to commune with him. And all it is, is, Ewan McGregor whispering to the air, hoping Liam Neeson shows up. <laughs> and he so, does in the finale in a really bad wig. Um, yeah, I just... And the thing is, I, I'm i a big fan of Ewan McGregor. I will pay to see Ewan McGregor read the phone book. Um, by the way, in the big Star Wars Vanity Fair cover story, Kathleen Kennedy said said that Solo failed because you can't recast legacy characters. It's like, um, you recast Ewan McGregor to play Obi-Wan and that turned out well. So it's just, sometimes you wonder, do they know what they're doing? Or did you hear what you just said? Um, I just, boy, I think somebody could edit a really good two-hour movie from bits of this. But the six hours of it don't work. For me, um, yeah. the, the, the ep- especially the- when like you have episode one and three of this show, Leia gets captured. Episode two and four of this ep- series, Leia gets saved. So that's <laughs> two thirds of your show repeating the same plot in different and, and, and episodes three and six of this show, 
Obi-Wan versus Darth rematch. (laughs) I hadn't even thought of it that way. Yeah, I I just felt it was some really kind of lazy, inconsistent storytelling. And uh, my fear is that you have two questionable quality live action shows in a row. Boba Fett and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And yes, there are people who love them both, although I haven't met many people who love Boba. But there reaches a point that, you know, fan loyalty is not completely, uh, what's the word, unconditional. If you burn them one too many times, they will not be back or they will complain or go toxic and hit you on social media. So I don't know. I just take more time, craft a better story. Maybe just do a telefilm or a short. It's like Netflix bloat is starting to spread to the other streaming services. You know, well, when you have Disney Plus and Paramount Plus saying things like Disney Plus saying we are going to have new Star Wars and or Marvel content every week of the year, or Paramount's hope is that every week there is new Star Trek content on paramount plus it gets to a point where you can't treat a streaming service like a quota machine because if you eventually like you're saying make enough things that are lackluster because you're trying to just have the sheer volume to compete with other services you're going to become what netflix is right now yep yep and Uh, you're you're going to lower your brand um I, i just feel like a lot of this is being done to uh, sustain the streaming subscriptions, uh, and, and less can be more. It's, it's not as special yep. when it's being churned out on a schedule at the cost of storytelling. Yep. Um, the The rumor is well, it's not even a rumor because Taika Waititi said it. Taika Waititi's is is in pre production on a Star Wars film. It will be not. It will not be connected to the Skywalker saga at all. I'm hoping that it will be the High Republic or the, you know, the High Republic or the Old Republic or something. But yeah, we just, we have strip mined so much from the Skywalker era that it's not that interesting anymore. And and there's more strip mining to come, hopefully, you know, with the Ahsoka show and some of the others. But the other, the other shows that are coming are supposed to be set in other time periods. But uh, to, to uh, end our podcast, I will... Uh, Quote that great philosopher Benjamin Solo, aka Kylo Ren, let the past die, kill it if you have to. And I think that they really need to start getting away from filling in the gaps between the Star Wars movies and forging new ground because otherwise it's it's going to end up being like on a stationary bike. You might pedal mm-hmm. a lot of mileage, but you haven't gone anywhere at the end. Yeah. To quote um, uh, Eric Voss's uh, New Rock Stars analysis, goodbye there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alec, and thank you too, Ryan. Of course. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. <laughs> May the force be with you. Live long and prosper. Bye-bye.